Welcome to the Untold Podcast, Ooh, capturing the culture's imagination through speculative fiction. I am your host, historical figure, Martin Luther. It was 500 years ago on October 31st that I nailed my 95 theses on Wittenberg door, making this a very special Reformation episode. Nobody cares about that. It's Halloween, and your accent's kind of offensive. <sighs> Fine. Welcome to the Untold Podcast, capturing the culture's imagination through speculative fiction. I'm your host, Ethan James Norman. Remember to submit a short story to our Good Snakes Flash Fiction Contest. From now until December 31st, we are accepting flash fiction submissions with the theme, Good Snakes. We want science fiction, fantasy, horror, strange, and supernatural stories, 300 to 1,000 words. Joining me in this project is Peter Younghusband from Reviews by Peter. Together, we'll select the top five stories and produce them on the show. Then, early in 2018, we'll turn over voting to the friends and fans of the show. The third place wins $25, second place $50, and first place wins $100. Our Halloween story today is by Jess Hanna. You'll remember him from episode 14, If It Causes You to Sin. Many of you still have nightmares from that episode. Jess Hanna is an author of supernatural thrillers that explore spiritual themes. As a devoted follower of Christ, Jess aims to write stories that intrigue and entertain while tirelessly pursuing the truth. He resides in Grand Rapids, Michigan with his wife. You can find Jess Hanna at jesshanna.com, where you can find plenty of horror stories like Adverse Possession and The Road to Hell. You can find digital versions for various e-readers for all of his works there, as well as traditional print formats. Connect with him on Facebook and follow him on Twitter at Jess Isaac Hanna. Head to the show notes for the direct links. Joining us for this episode is Carrie Kelso, who composed original music for this story. Carrie Kelso is a happily married father of three, a worship leader and guitar player who lives in North Alabama. His work has appeared on the No Sleep podcast and several episodes of Untold Podcast. This story originally appeared in the Crossover Alliance Anthology, Volume 2. And stay tuned after the story to hear some thoughts on the story from Jess Hanna himself. So, without further ado, the Untold Podcast horrifyingly presents The Reflecting Pool by Jess Hanna. The clear water of the reflecting pool shimmered like diamonds. The humidity made everything sticky, and the climbing mercury did nothing to temper the madness that came with it. Demetrius told himself he never intended for things to go as far as they did. He had always tried to maintain a calm and even demeanor, as was demanded of him by breeding and upbringing. In stark contrast to his lifelong training, he lay half on and half off the stone bench surrounding the pool and stared into the water. 
tears streaming down his soot and blood-covered face. Everyone else was gone, and he was left to deal with the fallout alone. He remained partially on that bench throughout most of the day and into the evening, contemplating what had happened and what was next. One thing he knew for certain, his chance for a life in Paradise Valley had vanished. That summer began like any other. 20-year-old Demetrius traveled with his parents, older brother, and younger sister to the mansion in Paradise Valley for an extended holiday. It was the most expensive house in the otherwise squalid community. Their wealth, something of a legend, paled in comparison to their contemporaries. Summers gave them the chance to rule as supreme royalty over the rabble. The town of Paradise Valley was nothing much to speak of. A single four-way stop in the middle of a bayou marked the center of town. A few broken-down shacks, a general store, and a seedy bar branched off from the intersection. Farms and poorly constructed houses spread outward from that point. The few families in residence were the poorest of the poor, forgotten relics of a society that deemed them an unworthy investment. In the midst of this human rubble, there was one star that had always shown its way to Demetrius's heart. Isabella was unlike any female he had known, and he had seen plenty. The society snobs, trophy mistresses on the arms of old men, and the phony women that surrounded him had nothing on her. Her inner beauty spilled over into outer beauty, making her the personification of perfection. During the two weeks prior to the family's arrival, the house staff worked furiously to prepare the mansion. Demetrius tried to hide his enthusiasm when he found out Isabella would be working as a maid for the season, but his uncharacteristic smile betrayed him. When he arrived at the mansion, the staff lined the outside of the circular drive closest to the front entrance, waiting for their arrival. The men and women stood straight with newly cleaned and pressed black and white uniforms, eager to serve. Isabella stood out from the rest, her golden light brown tresses even pulled back were something to behold, and her milk-chocolate eyes were divine. Demetrius's heart skipped as he exited the car and walked past her. She gave him a coy smile, which he returned as he continued into the house. Every chance he had, Demetrius stole away to spend time with Isabella. He accompanied her while she worked, chatting about anything and everything he could think of. She humored his affections, and her work never suffered for it. Her infectious laugh made him weak in the knees, and she had the enchanting voice of a siren. But all was not well with the young woman. Several times he had gone to meet her by the reflecting pool, and noticed her seated on the stone bench, contemplative, with her head bowed in prayer. He hated to disturb her, and would sit and watch her peaceful face as she uttered unknown words to her god. Demetrius never had any real use for religion, and neither did his family. They played the game as well as they could to secure their position in society, but it was never anything more than that. It was the same with most of the families in his circle, which was just one of the reasons why he was so enamored with Isabella's pure devotion to her beliefs. As the season went on, and the heat grew more intense, Demetrius's feelings for Isabella ignited a flame within him. 
His undeniable passion fueled the flame into an inferno, and he knew that his heart was hers forever. One day at the reflecting pool, he decided to share his feelings with her. He sat with her on the stone bench, taking her hands in his, and declared his love for her. She blushed and put a hand to her face, playing the coy maiden to perfection. Demetrius's father did not approve of the special attention Demetrius paid to Isabella and was furious. He called Demetrius into the parlor on a particularly sweltering day and spoke to him with a harshness usually reserved for insubordinate staff. I absolutely forbid you from engaging any further with this peasant girl. His disgust was evident in the way he referred to Isabella as a mere peasant girl. She is far too below your station, and I will not have that commoner romantically linked to our good name. Furious, Demetrius threw a tantrum of epic proportions. I refuse to cast her aside. She is my one true love and has warmed my heart like no other. And just because you settled for someone deemed worthy by your imaginary station in life does not mean I have to give up on my dreams of romance. Then you leave me no choice, his father said. Isabella can no longer work here and is forbidden from accessing this property effective immediately. And if you are seen with that girl, there will be severe consequences. He turned his back to Demetrius and walked away. His word, final. From that point on, Demetrius spent his days deep in the village of Paradise Valley, away from the mansion and away from his family. His rebellion was hidden from most of his family, but it did not go unnoticed by everyone. Demetrius and Isabella became inseparable. Their time together was the talk of the village, with the townspeople predicting that their union would be Isabella's ticket out of poverty. That is, if his family didn't tear her to shreds first. His heart hopelessly entwined with hers, Demetrius was blinded by his love. Emotions so intense were never allowed in his civilized society and he longed to be wild and free, no longer ensnared by the rules and responsibilities of his position. The first time making love with Isabella was unlike anything he'd experienced. The raging passion consumed him from the inside out, and he was forever lost in her embrace. Her enchantments were so great that he resolved to do anything for her, including forsaking his own good name in her defense. It was after a marathon session of lovemaking that Demetrius resolved in his heart to leave his family and live in the wilderness with Isabella forever. She encouraged his eagerness and made plans for him to run away to her tiny cabin in the woods of Paradise Valley. It was the same cabin where her mother gave birth to her 19 years earlier. His resolve was set, and he knew there would be no turning back once he made that fateful decision. Everything changed during a particular tumultuous day in late August. Dark clouds came in waves that afternoon, threatening a late summer storm, as he set out to meet Isabella by the reflecting pool. The risk of being caught with her so close to the main house only intensified the adrenaline that rushed through his veins. He picked a small bouquet of flowers from the garden before heading down there. They were selected hastily and looked rather shabby, but his heart was in the gesture. With his head full of dreams, he played scenarios in his mind about the fairy tale that would be his life. It was the fervent male grunting he heard as he reached the trellis that led to the reflecting pool that burst the bubble of his fantasy and had him scratching his head. Isabella was nowhere in sight, but he could hear the male voice in the sounds of obvious 
animal lust. He almost turned around to go the other way, leaving it be, but decided to follow the noise where it led. It was a decision he would regret. In the brushes, off to the side of the reflecting pool, Dimitri saw a man with his pants pulled down, on top of a woman with her skirts pulled up to her hips. The man was thrusting back and forth, and the woman, while appearing compliant, sounded like she was whimpering. Once again, Demetrius considered turning around and going back to the house, as it was none of his business, but the noises coming from the woman compelled him to investigate further. As he drew closer to the couple, he recognized both voices. The male was his older brother, Thomas, and the female was Isabella. Enraged, he tore through the bushes to confront them, dropping the bouquet on the way. What's going on here? Demetrius yelled, his face the shade of the reddest rose. His brother Thomas stopped his grotesque gyrating and spun off of Isabella. Demetrius took a step toward him and Thomas stumbled to his feet while pulling up his trousers, guilt plastered all over his face. Isabella lay trembling on the ground, tears streaming down her face, her clothing torn in several places. It was obvious to Demetrius what had happened. Thomas had taken advantage of her. Demetrius turned to his brother, who was buttoning up his trousers a safe distance away. How could you do this, Thomas? What were you thinking? Thomas stood in place, stunned into silence. The shame of what he'd done, apparent. He attempted to speak, but Demetrius heard none of it. Instead, he rushed toward his brother, intent on giving him the beating of his life. Thomas turned and ran, unaccustomed to such brash and violent behavior. Demetrius would have continued in pursuit of Thomas to the ends of the earth, but he had to get Isabella somewhere safe first. He rushed back to the reflecting pool and wept over her as she stood against a tree, attempting to straighten out her skirts. She leaned into his shoulder and allowed him to lift her off the ground in a show of strength. They were quite a sight, Demetrius carrying the helpless Isabella, who barely held onto his shoulder. Once they reached the cabin, Demetrius helped her clean up and watched from the living room as she slipped into a light, flowing nightgown. He then tucked her into bed and sat in a chair in the small room as she drifted into unconsciousness. He admired the softness of her features for a moment before dark thoughts of his brother Thomas spoiling her virtue entered his mind. After some time spent watching Isabella, Demetrius grew tired and fell asleep in the chair. He dreamed of a bright burning fire and crystal stars reflected against a black sky. The next morning, Isabella was gone. In her place was a note that simply read, Gone to see your family to make amends. Please don't come looking for me. I will be back soon. Isabella. Demetrius tossed the note onto the floor and rushed out the door. She was crazy to think he would sit idly by as she fed herself to the lions. His heart galloped as he sprinted through the woods on the way to the mansion. He saw smoke rising in the distance long before he'd reached his rural palace. It was white, gray, and varying shades of black spiraling into the sky. He inhaled the acrid scent as he drew closer. Flames leapt high above the trees, and he felt the heat on his face as he stumbled up the driveway. 
He had no idea if anyone was left inside and thought nothing of his safety as he burst through the closed front door. It was quite a sight to behold. Fire raced up the walls on either side of the great room with the central staircase intact. The support beams overhead crackled as the timber buckled under the pressure, sending embers skittering down on top of his head. Servants scattered like mice, seeking to escape through the open door behind him. Demetrius stood at the foot of the stairs, unsure which direction to take. Isabella! He cried out, expecting no response in return. Isabella! He cried out again, desperate to save her from the inferno. Silence was the only reply. He had just put one foot on the staircase when he caught sight of his angel. The simple white dress that hung loose on her frame was covered in soot and something crimson like blood. As he readied himself to rush headlong into danger to save her from the raging fires of that hell, he stopped short when he saw a bloodied blade in one of her hands and the head of his father in the other. My darling, she called out to him, holding the head out to him like a grotesque trophy. We are finally free to do as we please. Her twisted smile caused a loosening in Demetrius's bowels and bladder that he was ashamed to admit, but his love of her prevented him from seeking safety. Isabella cast aside the head as she descended the stairs, looking no less divine than before. It rolled down the steps with a series of sickening thumps before coming to rest near his feet. Her eyes reflected the fire, and her smile was sardonic. He took a step back as she approached, admiring her new dark beauty. She reached out the hand, not holding the knife, and he took it in his own, leading her down the remaining steps. Hand in hand, they walked through the great room toward the parlor that led to the reflecting pool. Flaming timbers crashed down around them in a great shower of sparks. They had just approached the trellis overlooking the pool when a figure emerged from the smoking ruins of the mansion. As the smoke cleared, the hulking shadow was revealed as Demetrius's brother, Thomas. He ran toward them, a fire burning in his eyes. His face was half burnt and blood poured out the side of his mouth. Baring his red-stained teeth, he cried like a demon and rushed toward them. Demetrius pleaded with Isabella to take flight with him, to run away from the danger, but she refused. Instead, she stood her ground with the knife held loosely by her side, nonchalant in the face of certain death. He was never more in love with her than in that very moment. Thomas's rage propelled him toward Isabella with violent passion. He was armed with nothing but his bare hands against the frail, defenseless girl. Isabella held her free hand out in front of her and blinked once, revealing inky pools of darkness where her eyes should have been. Demetrius choked on his own saliva at the sight of her and had no time to react as Thomas was stopped short, clutching at his own throat as he was lifted off the ground. Demetrius watched in horror, stunned into paralysis as an unseen force snapped his brother's neck. The rage in Thomas's eyes left, replaced by the emptiness of certain death. His body fell to the stairs in a heap. Isabella turned toward Demetrius, again holding out her free hand to him. She blinked once more 
and her eyes returned to their normal milk chocolate color. Shaking, he took her hand and allowed her to lead him down the stairs to the stone bench surrounding the reflecting pool. She sat down first, setting the bloody knife to her side. He sat next to her, taking her hands in his. She blinked again and stared at him with her new eyes that had turned entirely black. The most enchanting eyes he'd ever seen. My darling, she said as she touched his face, smearing the blood from her hands onto his cheek. Now we can finally be together. Demetrius smiled and leaned over the side of the reflecting pool. Isabella followed his lead. What he saw in the mirror of the water jolted him out of his stupor. His perfect creature, his soulmate, was transformed into the most hideous monster he'd ever seen. Her flesh was flayed away, and in its place was blood, bone, and sinew. He recoiled and retreated from her. What's the matter, darling? Is there something in my teeth? <laughs> she said before laughing like a mad woman. Demetrius attempted to stand and fell down to the ground. Isabella laughed at him again with the mocking tone of the devil himself. Stumbling, he made his way to the other end of the pool, putting distance between his beloved and himself. He kept his eyes on her as she stood up and snatched the knife off the bench. The sound of the blade scraping against the stone grated on the nerves in his teeth. Isabella walked toward him with all the dark, seductive grace she could muster, though hideously transfigured, a ghost of her former self. What's the matter, Demetrius? Don't you like the real me? She twirled and laughed again, throwing her head back. Demetrius's mind spun. W w what's happening here? She huffed to herself. <laughs> Men, so dumb, so easy to manipulate. You still don't get it, do you? Demetrius was dumbfounded. Your father, my father, my mother, don't you see? She became agitated and picked at her thigh with the knife as she moved toward him. Blood spilled from the wounds. We are all family, brother. What? The words took a moment to penetrate before the shock of what she just revealed overtook him. So much so that he doubled over and felt the wind leave his lungs. His one true love, his perfect soulmate, his half-sister. Bile rose into the back of his throat, making his mouth taste sour. He felt the urge to vomit, but suppressed it. A loud crack from the other side of the reflecting pool made both of them stop and turn. Part of the mansion collapsed, shaking the ground with its impact and sending fire and sparks toward the heavens. A cloud of smoke billowed out from the newly formed hole, burying the sky. It was a glorious sight to behold. Isabella put the knife to her temple and twisted it, drawing a thin line of blood. Now, Demetrius, be a good boy and let me destroy you. Then we can all move on from here. Demetrius's mind reeled, struggling to process the staggering implication of Isabella's revelations. She was his half-sister. His lust for her resulted in the dual sins of fornication and incest, and now everyone else was dead. A cry escaped his throat and his chest grew tight from the emotions boiling inside him. With tears spilling down his face, he said, You made me fall in love with you. 
How could you do this? He doubled over again, a searing pain spreading across his stomach. He wondered if Isabella was responsible for it, using her unseen power in the same way that she killed their brother, Thomas. In a way, she was partly responsible for his current pain, but it was his own crushing guilt and continued longing for her that caused most of it. She dropped the knife to her side and looked at him, but seemed far away. Well, I guess that's the price our father paid for brushing his sin under the rug of his perfect life. I watched you all these years, waiting for the chance to pay him back for what he did to my mother. What he did to me. Having enough of words, Isabella ran toward Demetrius, intent on completing her plan of revenge. He turned and fled from her, fear driving his survival instinct. The shoes he wore gave him no traction and slipped out from under him as he rounded a corner. He came down hard, his chin hitting the stone patio. Stars exploded across his field of vision. He heard the slap of Isabella's bare feet on the hard surface running after him and turned himself over to face the sky. Smoke from the house shielded the sun that tried with all its might to pierce through the hazy gray. He lay there, taking in shallow breaths, ready to accept the death that was coming for him. He didn't know how he could live any longer with everything he had ever loved stripped away from him. The sound of Isabella's feet stopped, and he sensed she was near. He raised his head and looked toward her. Her half-burned, matted hair cascaded down the side of her head. Her breathing was heavy, which caused her ample bosom to rise and fall with each respiration. Demetrius was repulsed at the sensation in his groin, the lust for his half-sister. Get up, Demetrius, she said. It's time for you to pay for our father's sin. Accepting his fate, Demetrius pushed himself off the ground and stood up to the best of his ability. His head felt heavy from the concussion he'd suffered from his fall, and he swayed from side to side. He looked toward his sister, his love, with a mixture of loathing and remorse. I want you to remember this moment, Demetrius, how much you hate yourself for what you've done. I want you to suffer in your misery and die in your shame, just like my mother. Her eyes flared with a hatred Demetrius had not seen before. Kill me he said in a soft voice. Please, just kill me. Isabella sauntered up to him and leaned in close, her lips brushing his earlobe. He felt her warm breath against his skin and shivered. It was intimate and sensual, sickly seductive. Oh no, nothing as simple as that, my love. She kissed his cheek with her soft, full lips and took a step away from him. If she was not going to kill him, what did she have planned? What could be worse than having the love of his life stab him in the heart? Demetrius's eyes grew wide as Isabella raised the knife in front of her, stopping for a second to admire its glittering brilliance before placing it over her own heart. He had no time to react as she plunged the blade deep within her breast, piercing her heart and ending her own life. He rushed over to her as she collapsed to the ground, he held her head in his hands. Hot tears flowed down his face, dripping onto her doomed body. She cracked open her eyes, revealing their human color, and gave him a sick, hateful smile. She brought her gore-covered hand to his face, and with her last breath said, My darling brother. 
I have always loved you the most. Demetrius lay by the reflecting pool well into the night, watching the stars overhead sparkle like suspended crystals. He wept bitter tears over his future, unsure of how he would ever be able to recover from the sudden tragedy his life had become. His entire family was decimated, and his half-sister Isabella had destroyed any chance he had at love. His only comfort as the sole remaining heir of his earthly father was the coldness of coin. His future, once so clear, was opaque and unknown. Redemption seemed an impossible reach. His sins were too great to bear the burden of forgiveness. He was doomed to become one of the walking damned, unless he could find a way to save himself from the depravity of his own evil heart. Instead of seeking that salvation, Demetrius resolved to lay by the reflecting pool and stare at the stars. The Reflecting Pool is a gothic horror and cautionary tale exploring the consequences of hidden sin and how it extends into the generations that follow and left buried for too long will result in explosive, unintended consequences when revealed. The main character rebels against his strict upbringing and succumbs to his lust under the guise of true love. And his lover hides secrets of her own, deceiving him with flattery and playing the damsel in distress to perfection. And it all ends with an illustration of the ugliness of sin and how it utterly destroys us, sometimes without being recognized until it is too late to escape unscathed. And that was our story. Thanks for the thoughts, Jess. Remember to submit your flash fiction for The Good Snakes Contest. You can also read the details at untoldpodcast.com backslash goodsnakes. And remember that... This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network. For more great content and community, visit christiangeekcentral.com. Please remember to join our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, blog about us, leave us nice reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find us, support us on Patreon, and tell your friends. The Untold Podcast has been funded by Jason Brannon, Fred Heimbach, Clayton Webb, Jen Finelli, Parker J. Cole, and Nathan and Casey Butler. And I'm Nathan James Norman, reminding you, we can finally be together. It's been 500 years. The darkness is still here. More Bibles than you know what to do with. But you don't read them and have no clue who God is. I nailed it. Yeah, I nailed it. Scripture alone. Faith alone. Grace alone. Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. Wasn't trying to rock the boat or start a revolution. Just calling out some sins to clear up theology confusion. But the Spirit took that small step and brought about transformation. Now the gospel can go out to every people, tongue, and nation. So here they are.
95 Theses. Out of love for the truth and desire to bring it to light, the following prepositions will be discussed at Wittenberg under the presidency of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and of Sacred Theology, and lecturer in ordinary on the same at that place. Wherefore, he requests that those who are unable to be present and debate orally with us may do so by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. This word cannot be understood to mean sacramental penance, i.e. confession and satisfaction, which is administered by the priests. Yet it means not inward repentance only. Nay, there is no inward repentance which does not outwardly work diverse mortifications of the flesh. The penalty of sin therefore continues so long as hatred of self continues, for this is the true inward repentance and continues until our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The Pope does not intend to remit and cannot remit any penalties other than those which he has imposed either by his own authority or by that of the canons. The Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring that it has been remitted by God and by assenting to God's remission, though to be sure he may grant remission in cases reserved to his judgment. If his right to grant remission in such cases were despised, the guilt would remain entirely unforgiven. God remits guilt to no one whom he does not at the same time humble in all things and bring into subjection to his vicar the priest. The penitential canons are imposed only on the living, and according to them, nothing should be imposed on the dying. Therefore, the Holy Spirit in the Pope is kind to us, because in his decrees he always makes exception of the article of death and of necessity. Ignorant and wicked are the doings of those priests who, in the case of the dying, reserve canonical penances for purgatory. This changing of the canonical penalty to the penalty of perjury is quite evidently one of the tears that were sown while the bishops slept. In former times, the canonical penalties were imposed not after but before absolution as tests of true contrition. The dying are freed by death from all penalties. They are already dead to canonical rules and have a right to be released from them. The imperfect health of soul, that is to say, the imperfect love of the dying, brings with it of necessity great fear, and the smaller the love, the greater is the fear. The fear and horror is sufficient of itself alone to say nothing of other things to constitute the penalty of purgatory, since it is very near to the horror of despair. Hell, purgatory, and heaven seem to differ as to despair, almost despair, and the assurance of safety. With souls in purgatory, it seems necessary that horror should grow less and love increase. It seems unproved either by reason or scripture that they are outside the state of merit, that is to say, of increasing love. Again, it seems unproved that they, or at least that all of them, are certain or assured of their own blessedness, though we may be quite certain of it. Therefore, by full remission of all penalties, the Pope means not actually of all, but only of those imposed by himself. Therefore, those preachers of indulgences are in error, who say that by the Pope's indulgences a man is freed from every penalty and saved, whereas he remits to soul in purgatory no penalty which, according to the canons, they would have to pay in this life. If it is at all possible to grant to any one the remissions of all penalties whatsoever, it is certain that the remission can be granted only to the most perfect, that is, to the very fewest. 
It must needs be, therefore, that the greater part of the people are deceived by that indiscriminate and high-sounding promise of release from penalty. The power which the Pope has in a general way over purgatory is just like the power which any Pope or curate has in a special way within his own diocese or parish. The Pope does well when he grants remission to souls in purgatory, not by the power of the keys, which he does not possess, but by way of intercession. They preach man who say that so soon as the penny jingles into the money box, the soul flies out of purgatory. It is certain that when pennies jingle into the money box, gain and avarice can be increased, but the result of the intercession of the church is in the power of God alone. Who knows whether all the souls in purgatory wish to be brought out of it, as in the legend of St. Severus and Pascal. No one is sure that his own contrition is sincere, much less that he has attained full remission. Rare as is the man that is truly penitent, so rare is also the man who truly buys indulgence, i.e. such men are most rare. They will be condemned eternally together with their teachers who believe themselves sure of salvation because they have letters of pardon. Men must be on their guard against those who say that the Pope's pardons are that inestimable gift of God by which man is reconciled to him. For these graces of pardon concern only the penalties of sacramental satisfaction, and these are appointed by man. They preach no Christian doctrine who teach that contrition is necessary in those who intend to buy souls out of purgatory or to buy confessionalia. Every truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without letters of pardon. Every true Christian, whether living or dead, has part in all the blessings of Christ and the church, and this is granted him by God even without letters of pardon. Nevertheless, the remission and participation in the blessings of the church which are granted by the Pope are in no way to be despised, for they are, as I have said, the declaration of divine remission. It is most difficult, even for the very keenest theologians, at one and the same time, to commend to the people the abundance of pardons and the need of true contrition. True contrition seeks and loves penalties, but liberal pardons only relax penalties and cause them to be hated or at least furnished an occasion for hating them. Apostolic pardons are to be preached with caution, lest the people may falsely think them preferable to other good works of love. Christians are to be taught that the Pope does not intend the buying of pardons to be compared in any way to works of mercy. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better work than buying pardons. Because love grows by works of love and man becomes better, but by pardons man does not grow better, only more free from penalty. Christians are to be taught that he who sees a man in need and passes him by and gives his money for pardons purchases not the indulgences of the Pope, but the indignation of God. Christians are to be taught that unless they have more than they need, they are bound to keep back what is necessary for their own families and by no means to squander it on pardons. Christians are to be taught that the buying of pardons is a matter of free will and not of commandment. Christians are to be taught that the Pope is granting pardons needs and therefore desires their devote prayers for him more than the money they bring. Christians are to be taught that the Pope's pardons are useful if they do not put their trust in them, but altogether harmful if through them they lose their fear of God. 
Christians are to be taught that if the Pope knew the exactations of the pardoned preachers, he would rather that St. Peter's Church should go to ashes than that it should be built up with the skin, flesh, and bones of his sheep. Christians are to be taught that it would be the Pope's wish, as it is his duty to give of his own money to the very many of those whom certain hawkers of pardons cajole money, even though the Church of St. Peter might have to be sold. The assurance of salvation by letters of pardon is vain, even though the commissary, nay, even though the Pope himself were to stake his soul upon it. They are the enemies of Christ and of the Pope who bid the word of God be altogether silent in some churches in order that pardons may be preached in others. Injury is done the word of God when in the same sermon an equal or a longer time is spent on pardons than on this word. It must be the intention of the Pope that if pardons, which are a very small thing, are celebrated with one bell, with single processions and ceremonies, then the gospel, which is the very greatest thing, should be preached with hundreds of bells, a hundred processions, a hundred ceremonies. The treasures of the church out of which the Pope grants indulgences are not sufficiently named or known among the people of Christ. That they are not temporal treasures is certainly evident. For many of the vendors do not pour out such treasures so easily, but only gather them. Nor are they the merits of Christ and the saints, for even without the Pope, these always work grace for the inner man and the cross, death, and hell for the outward man. St. Lawrence said that the treasures of the church were the church's poor, but he spoke according to the usage of the word in his own time. Without rashness, we say that the keys of the church given by Christ's merit are that treasure. For it is certain that for the remission of penalties and of reserved cases, the power of the Pope is of itself sufficient. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. But this treasure is naturally most odious, for it makes the first to be last. On the other hand, the treasure of indulgences is naturally most acceptable, for it makes the last to be first. Therefore, the treasures of the gospel are the nets with which they formerly were wont to fish for men of riches. The treasures of the indulgences are nets which they now fish for the riches of men. The indulgences which the preachers cry as the greatest graces are known to be truly such insofar as they promote gain. Yet they are in truth the very smallest graces compared with the grace of God and the piety of the cross. Bishops and curates are bound to admit the commissaries of apostolic pardons with all reverence, but still more are they bound to strain all their eyes and attend with all their ears, lest these men preach their own dreams instead of the commission of the Pope. He speaks against the truth of apostolic pardons, let him be anathema and accursed. But he who guards against the lust and license of the pardon preachers, let him be blessed. The Pope justly thunders against those who, by any art, contrive the injury of the traffic and pardons. But much more does he intend to thunder against those who use the pretext of pardons to contrive the injury of holy love and truth. To think the papal pardons so great that they could absolve a man even if he had committed an impossible sin and violated the mother of God? This is madness. We say on the contrary that the papal pardons are not able to remove the very least of venial sins so far as its guilt is concerned. 
It is said that even St. Peter, if he were now Pope, could not bestow greater graces. This is blasphemy against St. Peter, against the Pope. We say on the contrary that even the present Pope and any Pope at all has greater graces at his disposal, to wit, the gospel powers, gifts of healing, etc., as is written in 1 Corinthians 12. To say that the cross, emblazoned with the papal arms, which is set up by the preachers of indulgences, is of equal worth with the cross of Christ, is blasphemy. The bishops, curates, and theologians who allow such talk to be spread among the people will have an account to render. This unbridled preaching of pardons makes it no easy matter, even for learned men, to rescue the reverence due to the Pope from slander or even from the shrewd questionings of the laity. To wit, why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and of the dire need of the souls that are there? If he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? The former reasons would be most just, the latter is most trivial. Again, why are the mortuary and anniversary masses for the dead continued? And why does he not return or permit the withdrawal of the endowments found on their behalf since it is wrong to pray for the redeemed? Again, why is this new piety of God and the Pope that for money they allow a man who is impious and their enemy to buy out of purgatory the pious soul of a friend of God and do not rather because of that pious and beloved soul's own need free it for pure love's sake? Again, why are the penitential canons long since in actual fact and through disuse abrogated and dead, now satisfied by the granting of indulgences as though they were still alive and in force? Again, why does not the Pope, whose wealth is today greater than the riches of the richest, built just this one church of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of poor believers? Again, why is it that the Pope remits and what participation does he grant those who by perfect contrition have a right to full remission and participation? Again, what greater blessing could come to the church than if the Pope were to do a hundred times a day what he does once and bestow on every believer these remissions and participations? Since the Pope, by his pardons, seeks the salvation of souls rather than money, why does he suspend the indulgences and pardons granted heretofore, since these have equal efficacy? To repress these arguments and scruples of the laity by force alone and not to resolve them by giving reasons is to expose the church and the Pope to the ridicule of their enemies and to make Christians unhappy. If, therefore, pardons were preached according to the spirit and mind of the Pope, all these doubts would be readily resolved, nay, they would not exist. Away then with all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, peace, peace, and there is no peace. Blessed be all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, cross, cross, and there is no cross. Christians are to be exhorted that they be diligent in following Christ, their head through penalties, death, and hell, and thus be confident of entering into heaven, rather through the many tribulations than through the assurance of peace.